Hi, and welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, where we explore the unexplained. Our topics include missing persons, UFO and aerial phenomenon, unsolved murders, lost treasures, cryptozoology, urban legends, conspiracies, ancient archaeological anomalies, and much more. If this is your first time listening to us and you like our show, remember to subscribe when you get a chance. Each episode, we will dive into a topic or case with an in-depth narrative and include special guest interviews where possible. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 1, Episode 8, The Alberta UFO Wave of 1967. In 1967, Canada was having a wave of UFO sightings, including the famous incidents at Falcon Lake, Manitoba, which we covered in Season 1, Episode 5, and the Shag Harbor Incident. Alberta, a western Canadian province, was having a large number of UFO sightings, coupled together with photograph and witness testimony, with cases being investigated not only by local authorities, but by the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Air Force, and also by the United States military. 1967 started as an exceptional year, as one of the worst storms ever pounded Alberta. Blizzards buried southern Alberta in over six feet of snow. Roughly 30,000 head of cattle starved to death in their pastures. The army was called in to help with snow and animal clearing. An airlift began to help stranded families delivering food, water, and fuel. The year started off unusual, and continued to get even stranger, now with almost weekly reports of unidentified flying objects reported in the skies above Alberta. Both of Alberta's major city centers of Edmonton and Calgary saw a tremendous amount of activity, some of which was witnessed for up to four hours by multiple witnesses and also tracked by both civilian and airport radar devices. In addition, remote locations from the bald prairies to the tall mountain ranges were also reporting UFO activity. In 1967, Albertans were looking up to the sky and reporting countless objects that they could not explain. Ricky Banyard, a 14-year-old, was walking to his Southside Edmonton home across from Mount Pleasant Cemetery at about 2 a.m. when he noticed a white beam of light moving over the neighborhood. Perplexed, He followed it for several blocks before it disappeared. He walked back to his house, and just as he stepped up to his doorway, he saw it appear again. This time he walked to his friend's house, Glenn Coates, and woke him up to show him the weird light. Glenn grabbed binoculars, and they watched the light for some time. Glenn, who had not had permission to be out so late, decided he should go back home. Ricky decided to keep watch on the light and followed it into the cemetery, where he hid beneath a grove of trees as to not to be noticed. Here he says, at a better vantage point, he saw a spherical-shaped ship with red and green lights and a top and bottom portion that spun. The ship was 200 to 300 feet in the air and made muffled whistling noises as it hovered. He saw the beam of light's origin. It was emanating from the bottom of the ship in a rectangular shape about 15 centimeters above the ground and making everything on the ground bright white. Ricky stepped out from under the tree to have a better look, but then the light disappeared and he heard a screaming noise like a jet engine starting up. 
The ship's lights all went dark, and several bangs were heard, and then Ricky says the ship just took off. Ricky searched the sky but could not see the ship any longer. The next day he told his parents, and together they investigated the location, and found several rectangular-shaped black streaks marking the gravel roads in the cemetery. Cemetery caretaker Joseph LaForge noted that his grader had gone over the roads a day before and could have left these marks. However, the caretaker noted several larger marks that his grader could not have scraped and indicated they looked pretty unusual. Ricky drew a picture of what he saw, and we'll post this on our Facebook page for you to have a look at. And he showed it around his neighborhood. Several other witnesses then came forward and said they too saw the same ship and the beam of light. Two days later, a middle-aged couple living in the same area said they saw the same object with red and blue flashing lights on its edges and a bright white light beaming from underneath the ship. They indicated it hovered near their home and she called the local news media, but then it just vanished. It then reappeared five minutes later and she called the reporter again. She made a full report to the newspaper, but insisted that they not reveal her identity for fear of ridicule. About two dozen people then held a vigil at the cemetery to see if the ship would return. Over the course of the week, amateur astrologers, UFO researchers, and other interested parties kept an eye in the sky. However, they did not witness anything unusual. The cemetery caretaker said that litter was left behind and tombstones were overturned in the hysteria. But once the cemetery was abandoned by the UFO watchers, the ship returned. 29-year-old Jack Strangman, a school janitor, reported seeing a white oval-shaped object through binoculars over Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Two hours earlier, Norman Fibke, working in his backyard near the cemetery, saw a very bright egg-shaped object with two red lights on each end, and it hovered about the height of an airplane. He says as he watched it for several moments, it then sped off down to Earth at an incredible speed and then flew off west. Several other witnesses came forward near the original sighting to say they too saw what they could only describe as a fast-moving UFO. And they weren't the only ones reporting sightings that year. In July of 1967, 27-year-old Warren Smith and two companions saw something unusual in the skies as they hiked in the Kananaskis Mountain range near Nanton. They took two color photographs of an object described as shiny silver and approximately 25 feet in diameter. Dr. Hynek, consultant to the U.S. Air Force Project Blue Book at the time, stated after he saw the photographs that it was the best daylight disc photography he had personally investigated. The Department of National Defense also took an interest in the photographs and sighting, and the Royal Canadian Air Force reported the object was 40 to 50 feet in diameter, metallic, shiny, and with a minimum distance of about 2,000 feet. The United States Air Force also investigated and declared the photos to be most likely a hoax, the object of something being thrown in the air like a model. However, the witnesses all signed a statutory declaration to the effect that the photos were not a hoax, and if proven to be false, they would all face prosecution under the Canada Evidence Act. It was traveling toward us gradually, losing altitude, passed in front of us, and as it passed slightly out of view behind the trees, it then reappeared and hovered in open sky, and something of a much smaller size something fell from the craft. 
says Warren Smith. His 16-year-old companion states, It traveled towards us gradually, losing altitude, and at a distance of not more than a half mile. It hovered for moments, at which time some object was seen to fall from the craft. The fallen object was possibly one-hundredth the size of the mother craft. At treetop level, the craft in question then disappeared from sight. I am not sure at this point whether it became invisible or dissolved or merely sped out of sight at such a great speed that it was hard for the eye to follow. At any rate, it was moving away from us at a great speed when it disappeared from sight. I took two pictures of this strange craft and swear, to the best of my knowledge, that there was no other humans in that area and that there was no camera trickery involved, continues Warren Smith. No sound accompanied the sighting, and no exhaust or colors of any kind were seen. What we saw was a disc-shaped object with a silvery tone to it, with a size that the Department of National Defense in Canada described to be 35 to 40 feet in diameter, with a depth ratio of 4 to 1. My guess as to its size would put it is certainly no bigger than that. The one companion then decided to return to the hiking trail to relocate the location and to look for the reportedly dropped object from the UFO. He instructed his friends to call the authorities if he had not returned after three days. A week had passed, and finally friends notified the local news media instead of the police. A search party of police and army were sent in to rescue him, but the companion finally emerged from the rough terrain unscathed, but with a specimen claiming to be the dropped object. Dr. J. Allen Hynek advised that a specimen or specimens brought out by the companion thought to be related to the sighting were soldered with particles of aluminum-magnesium alloy embedded in them. At this time, Hynek visited Calgary to interview the witnesses and agreed to appear in a local radio program with the witnesses, who agreed eagerly to take a lie detector test on air, live. However, in some sort of misunderstanding, Hynek left Calgary beforehand and the radio station cancelled the piece and the lie detector testing. But the sightings would continue, including one of the first crop circles ever recorded in Canadian history. Seven circular rings ranging in diameter from 31 to 36 feet were found in a field upon Shilk's farm in Duhamel, Alberta. Several witnesses say they saw strange lights in the sky days prior. One of the circles was on sloping ground, and one ring smashed across a willow fence. Each ring was about six inches wide. Military investigators were dispatched to the site for an in-depth examination. In their final report, they noted that a tremendous weight would have been required to make the rings, at least three times that of a normal truck tire, and consistent with a large aircraft or presumably small spacecraft. And that's a quote. And if things weren't getting any stranger in 1967 in Alberta, a UFO decided to pursue a fast-moving train. Engineer William Benwick and other crew members of the Canadian National Rail 443 North Speed Freight say a UFO followed their train so close that, quote, if I'd had a slingshot, I could have knocked it down. William says the object flew alongside the train at a distance of about 100 yards and would come very close on some occasions. The object was sighted one mile north of El Nora at 1.50 a.m. by several of the train's crew. At first, Mr. Benwick had been reluctant to report this incident. 
I thought everybody would take me for a nut, he said. The train was traveling at about 50 miles per hour at the time they saw it first, and when they stopped in Alex to drop off a car, the object stopped and remained motionless. Then when the train started up again, it followed them into Mirror, Alberta. The crew described the UFO as being a little more than the length of a boxcar in diameter, about 40 feet. It had colored lights around the rim, which flashed red, green, orange, and yellow. Its top cone was black, and underneath there was a circle of a little bit of a glowing light, about 10 feet in diameter. When we got to Mir, William says, I told the operator there about it, and he asked what I had been drinking. So I told him, there it is, right in front of you. And he just said, my God. The CNR operator at Mir, Larry Mazur, later told Mr. Benwick that the UFO hovered about 15 miles east of Mir for two hours before it left. Mrs. Soppet, who lived about five miles west of Mir, said that she heard a humming and a whirling noise, and when she looked out the window, she saw an extremely fast-moving light in the sky. The following night, the engineer of another freight train, Hubert Schmidt, also reported the sighting of a UFO. And then things got even stranger in Alberta in 1967. On November 17th, David Seawalt, age 13 of Calgary, started a short three-minute walk home from a friend's house when he quickly ran into his house and tried to hide under his bed, telling his parents he had been chased by a UFO. One of his shoes was missing, and he seemed to be in a state of shock. The three-minute walk had taken him 45 minutes. Five months later, he woke up in the middle of the night from a nightmare. He then explained to his father he knew what had happened to him during this missing time. Under regressive hypnosis, he recounted having been abducted by the UFO that chased him. He says that once aboard the UFO, he was undressed and examined by a being that had rough brown skin, much like a crocodile. He says he saw three other creatures and they communicated with each other in voices that sounded like a kazoo and their hands only had four fingers. After examining David, the creatures beamed him back into the field where he had been abducted. The 1967 wave of UFOs continued and eyewitness reports came streaming into the media. Here are some witnesses describing a UFO they saw uh, just west of Calgary and uh, basically they heard a beeping noise. Uh, they went out to investigate. Uh, they saw the UFO and they interacted with the UFO in a very strange kind of way, as you will hear. At 10 after 9, the beeping began. Went down to the reserve fence, watched through binoculars, and we did see this thing. Now, it's about the size of the moon, with a small crescent at the bottom that's well lit like starlight. The top is a dark gray mass. It came down through the trees, whatever it was, and uh, we could hear the wind when it when it came down, the wind was really gusting, and the trees were just trembling all over, and it, then the beeping started, and when the beeping stopped, the wind came up high again. It was a calm night to begin with. As soon as it started beeping again, the wind came and receded just the same all the time, and we watched until quarter after one, and we had to come back to Calgary. Now, was, did the beeping come from the direction of this object, definitely? Yes, it did because we'd taken the rifle out and fired into the ground. And as soon as 
the rifle shot was heard, it switched positions and headed out towards High River. I fired a shot into the ground, and a few seconds later, we saw this dark object take off through the trees with a flame behind it. What color was the flame? The flame was an orange color. The following are actual eyewitness testimony recorded in 1967. Uh, listen to the testimony and see if you can notice any similarities between the eyewitness accounts when they describe the events that happened and also what the crafts looked like. I'm Evan Evanson from Tabern in Alberta. When I was, we were fixing the highway on highway number three, I'd, been, I'd taken a girl out to the drive-in and I, was, I, I took her home and I didn't want to go through that, through all that mess, so I decided to take 36. I was going down the road and and I noticed that I got halfway down there and I looked I was looking at my 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 you know the gauge for the temperature and it was it was climbing it was climbing right over to hot and I couldn't figure it out because it never done it before so I saw this driveway in this field so I thought I'd pull in and shut her off and let it cool off and just get out and look under the hood and see if I was out of water or something so I pulled in there all right and I would just turn the turn the truck off, and I was gonna reach down for the handle and open the door. And I looked out the window, and that's that's when I first saw it. It was a real light green light to it. I don't I don't really know how long it was, but I could see the top, and it sort of have a dome shape to it. If I'd opened the window, I think I could have touched it. About it was about three feet from my door, I think. And. Uh, my radio had been playing at the time, and it sort of faded out, and I got a steady beep, beep, beep sound. And I, it sort of gave me a funny feeling. I was scared, I think, and I went, we reached down and turned it off. And I only looked at it a couple of seconds, and I looked back out the window, whatever was there was gone. Forestry lookout Russell Hill heard the beeping on both long and short wave. I've heard the same, same count myself. Many times on, on, on transistor radio on both frequencies on shortwave and uh, standard broadcast. Varied from half an hour to 20 minutes. And I bought the, I checked with other lookouts and asked about it. They, they've, they've heard, heard this count, yeah. They've oh, all they heard have. this count on, on, their, on their radios like I have. He'll also experienced other electrical effects. And while I was sitting down to eat, my light behind me started to flicker off and on. Like a kid would be pulling a coil up and down, checking the light off and on. I saw this strange light coming, and I turned my own light out then and watched the thing pass to the west of the lookout below me. The, the, this machine had passed within distance of me. I could see it quite clear, make out the one light that was circulating uh, amidships, and then it seemed to pause, and as if undecided whether to go north, I was going in the northerly, northerly direction, and then she cut from there northwest. And at the, when it when it cut to the northwest, it picked up speed, and the, the light, the circulating green light on the side, stopped, went out. The light on the dome top that was uh, rotating slowly, pulsating slowly. Come on, bright white, uh, bright white, and a shot northwest, and then it disappeared. 
A Calgary night watchman reported the same effect on lights. It was coming in between number 10 Air Force and the Curry Barracks, mm -hmm. and it was flying southeast. And when it came over the, the construction site, it, uh, it stopped, and all lights went out. Mrs. Nora Tebbs had both her car engine and radio affected. My name is Nora Tebbs. I'm a married woman. I was leaving Calgary on my way back to High River on the night of Wednesday, the 11th of October, 1967. I was reaching the bridge near Alderside, crossing over the bridge, noticing how bright the moon was, with two or three dark streaks of shadow over it. When all of a sudden my radio cut out, my car lights went out, and my first thoughts were I was stuck on the highway with no lights, and I had to get over the side of the road out of the way of any uh, traffic which may pass me. I piled my foot to the gas pedal to get over, and I had no motor, no compression at all. Then I looked up to see what was darkening out the moon, as I figured I might have to walk to the service station to get some help. Then I saw this black object coming towards what I seemed to be coming towards the car. As I looked out of my front window, it crossed over the moon and came to the side. It was oval-shaped, and from where I was sitting, it looked long and black, with white, vivid light coming out from the tail, tail end of it. And I watched this thing just spellbound, going round and round the car. And then... How many times would you think? I will say it circled the car about between four to five times. I was just watching, from one side to the other, then across the front of the of the car. I could see it in clear vision all the time, except when it reached the back of the car. I couldn't see out around the back of that. And then as it went away, my radio came on, and the car lights came on. I put my foot on the gas pedal, and the motor started. I don't ever remember knocking the motor into turning the key or doing anything. It was an experience I'll always remember. The same week, a CNR diesel locomotive was unaffected, but its radio was rendered inoperative. My name is William Benwick. I'm a locomotive engineer in the Canadian National Railway out of Sarcy Yard, Calgary, and I was on a speed freight train 443 north on October the 12th, 1967. We were called for 2200 out of Calgary and when we got to north of Alnora, Alberta on the Three Hills subdivision, coming making a left-hand curve and just prior to making a right-hand curve I noticed a light, a very bright light, hovering over the trees to the east side of the track. I mentioned to the brakeman, Mr. Helzeback, that I seen this light and he took a better look at it with me and it started to move northward in the same direction we were moving at a we were moving at a speed of 50 miles per hour and it was going along parallel to us and it made a turn to the east crossing the track to the east side uh, of our train and started moving back towards us and we had a very good look at this which we realized was a flying saucer and it come right at us at approximately, we were doing 50 miles an hour, and I would say it must have been moving at between 80 and 100 towards us, and it sphered off to the east. I tried to get the tail end by radio telephone, uh, of the tail end of our train 443 north, but uh, our radio had cut out. We couldn't pick them up. At that particular place, uh, when I was calling my conductor, Jack Cresswell, uh, is uh, definitely not a blind spot because well, we've talked to him through that area many times. Uh, we, we went ahead, uh, we must have gone about uh, 10 miles, and we were watching it behind us. And then the brakeman says, 
Here it comes again, and it come right up to about alongside of us at about 15 miles out in the sky, and then it kept up with us as we were proceeding northward towards Mir, Alberta. It kept up with us till we arrived to Alex, Alberta. The brakeman was a little leery of getting off. We had to set a car off at Alex, which was a, a piggyback car for a red deer. We set the car out, and it seemed to have stopped. And we had the feeling that it was watching us more than we were watching it, the, the saucer, that is. Well, but uh, I, I assumed that, in my own estimation, when it was first spotted, it was about 150 feet, or 100 feet, 150 feet above the trees at about a half a block distance away from our engines. Yeah, being a railroad man, I uh, estimate everything by car signs, car distances, and so on. I would say a good long car length. It, uh, it had a, the particular thing that impressed us is a, such a speed it had. Uh, uh, taking a rough guess, maybe 2,000 miles an hour, uh, something like a rocket when it takes off from Earth, maybe faster even. I was in the Navy, and I've seen many types of aircraft, and I've never seen anything that travel like uh, this thing could travel. And it is definitely a machine. There's no doubt about it. It's not a vision. It's not a cloud. It is a machine. In one instance, too long proximity to a UFO apparently burned out an auto's electrical wiring, melted the pitch on the battery, and produced other heating effects. Lights in my car started to go dim, and the motor started to sputter, cough, die. And I uh, happened to look at the ammeter, and I saw that it was pinned against the discharge. I thought there was a short in the electrical system. So I shut the car off and got out and opened the hood. There didn't appear to be anything wrong with it. I spotted this thing, saw this thing hovering approximately above the highway, a little bit off to the side, about 100 yards or 200 yards away. Uh, my hair got warm to the touch. It was hot to the touch, not really hot, but it, it was unpleasant, an unpleasant sensation. I have a copper ring on my left ring finger. It got rather warm, and it got, well, it was unpleasant to the feel. I finally took it off. I have a sterling ring on my right little finger and it was it wasn't as hot as the copper ring but it was still getting unpleasant so I decided to take that off too and I noticed my watch getting a little I have a metal watch watch band here and it got warm it seemed like all the metal around was getting hot uh, and a metal button and metal fly in my pants and they got hot in one interesting sighting the witness near Calgary observed a UFO emerge from a wispy cloud that surrounded it a similar experience was encountered by this pilot. I have had some flying experience as a bomber pilot during the war, and since the war have operated my own private airplane. In 1963, the month of October, upon returning uh, from a business trip, I was approximately 20 to 25 miles south of Calgary and approaching the airport on a northerly heading when I noticed in the northwest area at an altitude of approximately 5,000 to 5,500 feet, a machine that was stationary appeared to be in a w within a wispy type of cloud. Uh, 
I was quite surprised. I had heard of flying saucers, although I had never believed there were such things, so I set course to, uh, to this object. Uh, upon heading in that direction, after a few seconds, the object moved in a south direction, maintaining the same altitude. Uh, it appeared to be uh, saucer-shaped, actually two saucers, um, one inverted, one upright. Uh, there was, on the upper portion of the upper saucer, the inverted saucer, uh, appeared to be windows uh, circling the, the uh, upper part of the inverted saucer. Uh, also, there was this wispy cloud. Uh, maybe I should describe it as being misty. Uh, but as mentioned before, as I approached, it moved and quickly accelerated to what I would estimate five to seven hundred miles per hour. It left me uh, sitting. Clouds don't move more than, uh, shall we say, a hundred miles an hour. Uh, with this uh, knowledge, I then contacted the Calgary Tower and advised that I had sighted a flying saucer. Uh, whether this was recorded or not, I, I don't know. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links, and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you or someone you know will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Capelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler. <laughs>